0: And welcome to Linux Action News, episode 186. Recorded on April 25th, 2021, I'm Chris. And I'm Wes.
1: Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. In our top story this week, the University of Minnesota has been banned from contributing to the Linux kernel. Over the past year, the university appears to have been conducting research on the kernel and is weeks away from publishing a paper based on that research, titled Stealthily Introducing Vulnerabilities in Open Source Software via Hypocrite. Commits. Conducted in August of 2020, the research aimed to find what the researchers call immature vulnerabilities, which are sections of code that could be slightly tweaked to introduce a serious bug, like a use after free memory issue. The researchers then sent in those so called hypocrite commits, which are small, stealthy patches that attempt to fix a minor but real issue while, in fact, upgrading an immature vulnerability into a real vulnerability. Fast forward from
0: last year to early April 2021, when a new patch was submitted by a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota. It was a new, small, innocent-seeming
1: patch. Events developed further on the 19th when veteran Colonel Contributor Al Vero rebuked that candidate for submitting a fix that does not fix anything. In the email thread, he suggested this contribution pointed Two Possibilities, writing. Plainly put,
0: the patch demonstrates either a complete lack of understanding or somebody not acting in good faith. If it's the latter, may I suggest the esteemed sociologist to f*** off and stop testing the reviewers with deliberately spewed excrements.
1: Alviro suspected that the useless patch from the student was likely to be part of that hypocrite commit research. Greg K.H. seemed to agree and advise them not to waste the kernel maintainer's time with such patches, writing,
0: Please stop submitting known invalid patches. Your professor is playing around with the review process in order to achieve a paper in some strange and bizarre way. This is not okay. It's wasting our time, and we
1: will have to report this again to your university. Seemingly unaware of the larger context around the previously conducted research, the initial reaction from the university was defensive, claiming the kernel team was hostile to newbies. That seems to have been something of a last straw for Greg, who stated he will now have to ban all future contributions from
0: your university and rip out your previous contributions, as they were obviously submitted in bad faith with the intent to cause problems.
1: After various back-and-forth exchanges, on April 24th, the research team released an open letter to the Linux community, writing, We sincerely apologize for any
0: harm our research group did to the Linux kernel community. Our goal was to identify the issues with the patching process and ways to address them. And we are very sorry that the method used in the Hypocrite Commits paper was inappropriate. As many observers have pointed out to us, we made a mistake by not finding a way to consult with the community and obtain permission before running this study. We did that because we knew we could not ask the maintainers
1: of Linux for permission, or they would be on the
0: lookout for the Hypocrite patches.
1: There also seems to be something of a small mob coming for Greg... There was much internal discussion on how best to handle the university's patches, both past and future. In particular, though, Brad Spangler seems to be calling for Greg K. H. to be removed from the colonel's Code of Conduct Committee.
0: It's probably worth pointing out that, in my opinion, Brad's maybe not a good-faith actor in this. Uh, He runs GR Security. You can look them up. You may recognize the name. They're known for constantly butting heads with the Linux kernel developers. I think there's bad blood there.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. Where do things stand now, though? Well, we're waiting for several things, including updates from the university's review of the approval process and specifics on the hypocrite commits that were accepted. Those details are being withheld right now, The researchers claiming it would reveal identities of those involved, but it's made it hard to have all the details we need to really analyze what happened here.
0: Yeah, they don't want to necessarily dock somebody further. Um, But the other things we're waiting for, I would point out, is the university was sent a letter from the Linux Foundation on Friday, April 23rd, which outlines how they can regain the trust, essentially, of the Linux kernel community. And that's just kind of the answer right now from the team. Respond to the letter and then we'll proceed.
1: So that's the facts. Now, for our analysis. This started out, to me anyway, as a technical issue, but really it's become a human issue. The kernel community's trust was violated. They feel burned, time was wasted, and if things had gone differently, they might have also just been embarrassed by this research. They weren't given an opportunity to have a voice to change how it might have gone or ask them not to do it in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And this would have been revealed, this big paper soon, at the IEEE Symposium on Security and Privacy, which starts May 23rd. So it would have been unveiled in front of a large audience. It may have been a bit of a bombshell had this whole thing not happened. If not for this kerfuffle we're we're now talking about, this paper kind of just would have been a news item in itself. It probably would have been on this show. But now, well, now the paper's kind of going to be a flop, isn't it? It's going to be covered in
1: kerfuffle stink. And partly that may well be deserved. But I have to ask, what about the questions the research was trying to address? How vulnerable is the kernel to patches from malicious actors? That's probably something we should ask, even if we don't think this line of research was a good way to go about answering it. Yeah, even if it's something that's further up the user stack, maybe it doesn't have quite the resources.
0: I think that's kind of the downside to how the research team handled this, is now the reaction to it and the correction to it has prevented what is probably a pretty valuable conversation. And while we don't know everything right now, and putting aside how the research was conducted, it it seems like reading through all of this, that there was code that got accepted in 2020 and was not
1: caught by the maintainer. It might validate that this attack vector really is possible. I'm sure we've known about this, right? We know nation-state actors have targeted the kernel before, but what we don't have a great picture of is how well has that worked? Now, these were all pretty small, seemingly trivial patches, but I'd like to know more. Yeah, and I
0: think the researchers had them rolled back. You know, they emailed in, oh, no, we caught something, we need to fix this, before it was actually committed to the actual kernel tree. I, I didn't didn't seem like there was any, at least of these three, nothing made it to, like, a distribution or anything. And they self-corrected before it went too far.
1: I would agree that it seems like if you, if you take their paper at good faith here, that was always their intent. They didn't ever want to actually add new vulnerabilities to the kernel. They were just trying to see if they could get maintainers to say, looks good.
0: In some in some senses, it's like, oh, yeah, obviously. You know, if you pretend to be a good actor for a while and then you sneak in some code, a busy maintainer is going to let that in. Uh, that's not, not a big surprise, you know, breaking news, ha-ha. But at the same time, it does kind of raise the question could we build better tooling? Is there something we could do that's maybe automated that would be checking for these kinds of things? And I think the real crime, the unspoken crime here that we haven't said out loud, is they took, they burned kernel developer time. They took, they used, they stole kernel developer time. And those maintainers and the developers of the kernel are so busy that that should be a crime against humanity. And that's the thing, that's kind of the unspoken part that we haven't said out loud yet, is that's really what happened here, and that's the crime they've committed, essentially, because nothing ever made it into production.
1: Well, on a happier note, while Greg was off dealing with that kerfuffle, Linus was hard at work on a shiny new kernel. That's right, after a week delay, the Linux 5.12 kernel has been released. Linus Torvalds wrote in a brief announcement... Thanks to everybody who made last week, very calm indeed, which just makes me feel much happier
0: about the final 512 release.
1: Linux 512 brings Intel variable rate refresh, Radeon RX 6000 series overclocking support, and, of course, mainline support for the Nintendo 64. Linode.com slash land. Go there to receive
0: a $100 60 day credit towards your new account. And of course, you go there to support the show. Linode is the largest independent cloud computing provider. But really, Linode is where you go if you just want to spin something up on the web for yourself, for your company. Maybe it's a portfolio. Maybe it's the back-end infrastructure for your company's website. I've been using them for just over about two and a half years. And they're the only company I recommend for people that want to host something online no matter what skill level you're at or what technology stack you use linode can help your ideas come to life on the web if you run into any trouble well i've got good news they have the absolute best customer service 24 7 by phone or ticket they're going to help you along with hundreds of guides and tutorials to make sure you have the confidence to put something into production. And Linode is easy to use while still being powerful. They got started in 2003 and they have focused on one thing and one thing only and made it fantastic. They've added features where it makes sense, like S3 compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, and a great selection of simple one click application deployments. And all of it is backed by super fast networking 11. Data centers, crazy quick SSDs, AMD Epic CPUs for their dedicated CPU rigs, and of course, they have dedicated GPU machines and systems that are just $5 a month. That's why you got to go check it out for yourself. There's so many good things you can do with Linode, so many different things you can try, or can also just be a great platform to learn. Go see why Jupiter Broadcasting has chosen to host everything we've built for JB 3.0 at Linode. There's not even a question of where we're going to host it. We know. Before the conversation even gets started, we're going to host it at Linode. So go to linode.com slash LAN, get that $100 dollars dollar six day credit on your new account, and of course,
1: you support the show. Linode.com slash LAN. Right on schedule, Canonical released Ubuntu 2104 this week. It comes with GNOME 3.38.5 and is powered by the Linux 5.11 kernel. It has some notable new defaults, including Wayland and private home directories, as well as improved Active Directory integration and a new power mode selector in GNOME settings. Yeah, the new power mode selector, it looks pretty good. One of the great aspects, though,
0: of a new Ubuntu release is there's a lot of flavors that release as well. So that's a lot to cover, but we want to give you a high level. The new Ubuntu 2104 features XFCE 4.16. Ubuntu Budgie now comes with Budgie Desktop 10.5.2. Kubuntu comes with that delicious Plasma 5.21. Tasty! And Lubuntu has LXQt 0.16.0. The mainline Ubuntu and all of the flavors will be supported until February 2022.
1: If you'd like our take on this new release, we gave it a spin over in Linux Unplugged, episode 402.
0: Also this week, Canonical shared new details on their recently reformed community team, In a blog post, they wrote, Over the past month or so, the beginnings of a new community team has been taking shape inside Canonical, with
1: the specific purpose of serving the community. On Friday, the team held a live stream to answer questions, and featured a member of the Yaru theme team as a special guest. This was hopefully the first of regular streams. If so, you can watch future events live on YouTube via the Ubuntu On Air YouTube channel. And ask the team questions by Ubuntu Discourse. But all in all, it's a
0: really good release. Seems super solid. Gnome 3.3.8 has gotten some nice refinements in this version. And isn't it nice to see them back on Wayland? I think we remember when they tried Wayland before and it didn't work out. And now Canonical's doing it in a way where they have time before the next LTS to work out the kinks. I guess they've learned something. I hope. And I, I hope they I hope it works out for them. But speaking of Wayland, Fedora 34 is just hours away from release as we record. And there was a prior blocking bug before, but they fixed it. They got it addressed. And so in Friday's go-no-go meeting, they determined, yes, 34 is fit for release. Among the changes in 34, of course, is the use of pipe wire for all audio needs rather than pulse audio. ButterFS transparent compression is now enabled by default. System oomd is now handling those tight memory situations. And the plasma spin? is on Wayland by default, expanding Fedora's Wayland by default on the top-tier desktop spins.
1: Fedora 34 is also introducing an ARCH64-based Fedora KDE Plasma desktop spin. And while that's a mouthful, something tells me you're pretty excited about it, Chris. I'm thinking that's going on my Pi 400. We'll have a complete review of the new release in Tuesday's Linux Unplugged, episode 403. And just a quick note for you Red Hat fans out there, Red Hat Summit 2021 is taking place this week, April 27th and 28th. Well, believe it or not, also speaking of Wayland,
0: Microsoft has shipped a preview version of WSL with graphical Linux application support. It's called WSLG for short which is available in the latest Windows 10 Insider builds and features an OpenGL accelerated rendering pipeline using a custom RDP virtual channel between the Weston RDP server and the client running on the Windows host. And yet in this process, Microsoft has been
1: upstreaming patches to free RDP. That's not all, though. Also under the hood is a mini Linux distro which Microsoft is spinning up behind the scenes whenever a user launches a new Linux GUI app. Called CBL Mariner, which stands for Common Base Linux, it's also the distro Microsoft uses for containers in Azure's Kubernetes service. Inside that distro is all the goodies you might need for a modern audio-visual-enabled Linux desktop application from Pulse Audio to Wayland. And rather impressively, The open source WSL DVC plugin, which retrieves a list of Linux GUI applications and creates links for them in the Windows start menu.
0: I don't know why, Wes, but that was the part that surprised me the most because we knew this graphical support was coming. We'd seen some of their early um, talks on it. But when I actually sat down on a Windows box with this enabled and saw that there was like Audacity listed in the start menu that was actually the Linux version. I, I guess it was just, it was a level of integration beyond what I expected.
1: Same here. It really is impressive. And it seems to be one of the goals they're striving through throughout this whole WSL project is how do we make this as seamless as possible from better file sharing across both services to now, yeah, you don't want to run applications as if they're installed in Windows.
0: Also nice to see that they're adding uh, a new set of command line tools to make it easier to manage WSL. I thought that was pretty nice. I don't know if it's complete, though, because it seems like not everything was installed properly when I used the command line tools. But I like where they're going because it's going to make like just WSL dash dash install and you got a base system up and going.
1: You will need to be in the Windows Insider program to have access, but... It is a big usability improvement from the rather large set of obscure Windows command lines you otherwise have to use. To enabling features with DISM, things like that to get it to work, which is not as friendly for your Linux users out there. This
0: always stokes the debate of, is this going to make people less inclined to use the Linux desktop? Now that you can you can have WSLG on Windows, you can have three or four different distros in terminal windows and you can install Linux applications, your favorite Linux applications, and run them with OpenGL acceleration. Oh, and just kind of ironically, I suppose, they're also going to be Wayland. So when so when you run your Linux applications on Windows, you're using Wayland to make it possible. That's how Microsoft is actually bridging the GUI gap, if you will. And I think that's remarkable.
1: Well, this was kind of the last large gap. I mean, yes, you could do it, but you had to hack it all together yourself. This makes the whole thing feel, A, much more integrated, as you touched on, but B, also more of like a real distro. I mean, it feels like, you know, Microsoft is shipping this sort of well-contained and thought-through system that's kind of fully featured. I mean, if Ubuntu 2104 wasn't running Wayland, I mean, they'd be behind Microsoft. (laughs) You burned, Canonical. But... All kidding aside, the experience definitely isn't perfect yet. I had more than a few issues, including WSLG not installing at all and requiring me to totally remove WSL before I could get it working again. And I know you ran into a few issues with setup as well.
0: Yep. Essentially, it just was an incomplete installation because I was trying that new command line tool, which, like I say, I think that's a good direction to go. But when you're working with the early preview builds, it's well, it's beta. It's It's definitely beta. <laughs>
1: For instance, you also need to make sure you get upgraded specific drivers that enable the sort of virtual GPU support to make this really efficient. And at least in Ubuntu, you still have to install all of the sort of normal user land libraries, which adds, I don't know, another 700 megs to your little Linux distro there, despite the fact that a lot of that's being handled by Microsoft.
0: There's just no doubt about it. When you and I were going back and forth over chat as we were getting our Windows boxes set up. It is kind of arcane. When you set up a Windows box from scratch, from, from zero, it feels like you've time traveled back to the 90s. And, and I, I totally appreciate that's not the experience for 99% of Windows consumers. They buy a machine and Windows is loaded on it. And so I'm never really going to voluntarily run Windows, really, no matter how good WSL gets. Um, I'm just kind of hopeful it means in the end we have more Linux users, at least in some form.
1: Right. I think that's kind of where we have to hope is maybe you're a gamer who really needs to have Windows because that's where all of your games run the best. Or perhaps you're at work and, well, Windows is the workstation that's provided to you. Maybe you even want to target Linux, but you didn't have a great way to do that. You didn't have IT staff who knew how to build you a a Linux development test workstation. That's all taken care of for you now. And it kind of seems like developing desktop Linux apps is one of the use cases Microsoft has built this with in mind.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? They emphasize that a little bit in their video talking about this. And uh, you know what I think it's for? What? Microsoft Outlook. Their Outlook developers aren't Linux desktop users, but I believe down in my core that they're working on a brand new version of Outlook. We already know they're working on an Electron version, but I think they're working on a version that they're going to bring over to Linux. But job one is getting the in-house Microsoft developers up to date with WSLG. And then once they have the infrastructure in place, they can actually start
1: working on the, on the Linux desktop port. I see your desktop Linux email client master plan. If you'd like to learn more about WSLG without going through the pain of installing Windows, you might want to check out a video we'll have linked from Microsoft product manager Craig Lowen, where he demos things like using gedit to browse and edit files on his Windows system and record in WSL with audacity sound coming from the windows host linux.ting.com
0: go see how much you could save and get $25 off they have plans that'll work for a family or plans that'll work for an individual or plans that'll work for your small business i love their new flex plan i think it's great because you can have as many lines as you need on your account and then it's just $10 additional per line Every line gets unlimited text and calls, and every line shares the same pool of data, either LTE or glorious 5G. If we use 2 gigs or 20 gigs or more, there's a perfect Ting plan for you, and every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning, crushing-it customer service and their nationwide LTE and 5G network coverage. And the best part... No contracts ever. What I love about Ting is they have three different networks to choose from, and right now I'm on the Verizon network. I've moved around depending on the coverage, but I love that they have so many different options. And here's a truth bomb for you. It's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone works because they support so many networks. So here's what you do. Get your Ninja outfit on and then head over to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, create an account, pick the plan that's right for you. And when you're all done, Ting will send you a SIM card that you pop in your phone and you get activated in minutes. So go try it out right now at linux.ting.com
1: This past week, our little Linux-powered helicopter made three successful flights on Mars. And what's remarkable about all of this is that Linux and open source is at the core of everything making this possible. That right there is the team
0: celebrating video sent back to the ground using FFmpeg to process and prepare it for them. And FFmpeg is one of thousands of open source projects inside these rovers and the rotocopter. And that's something the JPL and GitHub CEO Nat Friedman wanted to recognize. And so they worked with JPL to go through the list to look at all of the projects and discover the nearly 12,000 developers on GitHub who contributed to different aspects of Ingenuity's open source software stack. And those developers they've identified will now have a swanky
1: badge on their profile. Definitely something to be proud of. And I appreciate the work GitHub did here just because we know open source is long and deep. And maybe you contributed to some small library somewhere. You would have no idea. it was on another planet. At first, like
0: skeptical pants, Chris was like, a badge. Badges. We don't need no freaking badges. And then I realized, actually, Chris, if you were to browse somebody's GitHub profile and you saw that badge on there... I actually think I'd be legit impressed, and so then I actually kind of think it's neat. And you're right; they did have to do some digging. It's it's kind of a cool story, and I am just I am just so thrilled at the three successful flights of this Linux powered rotocopter, and what a milestone that this is for Linux in general and in future space missions. I mean, we just we just saw history right here. Ah, I guess that's just what I love about doing this show. There's history being made every single week, and we try to capture it. Go to LinuxActionNews.com/slash
1: subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch.
0: You heard us mention it earlier. Don't miss Linux Unplugged 403. It's our review of Fedora 34. And why not join us live if you can make it? Tuesday, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv.
1: We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you next week.